He was a larger-than-life villain. But did you know that he was also conceived as a metaphor for nuclear weapons? If you enjoyed this episode on Godzilla, be sure to follow Villains Free exclusively on Spotify. This month, we're taking on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Check out our episodes on Loki, Venom, Killmonger, and Thanos today. Follow Villains Free only on Spotify. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone. Welcome to another episode of Villains. I'm Alastair Murden. This is the show where we analyze villains, both real and fictional. We're starting a new four-episode season this week. For the next month, we'll be discussing chaos villains, those who wreak havoc with no concern for the human cost. Today, we'll focus on Godzilla, star of the longest-running film franchise of all time. Most know that he was inspired by the atomic horrors of World War II, but in actuality, there was a hydrogen bomb test in 1954 that had a much bigger impact on the development of the monster. And today, he serves as a representation of man's failed attempts to control nature. As always, you can find Villains and all other podcast originals on Spotify. In case you somehow don't know, Godzilla is a giant monster, also known as a kaiju. He first debuted in an eponymous 1954 movie and has since appeared in over 30 films, multiple cartoons, comic books, and novels, making the jump from Japanese media to American pop culture. Depending on the film, he is anywhere from 164 to 1,000 feet tall. He has a long tail, and his back is covered in oddly large spikes. Trying to recap the plot of all these movies would take more time than we have, but it's frankly unnecessary because most of them follow the same structure. The people of Japan slowly become aware of the monster's presence as it attacks ships in the ocean. It eventually emerges, causing a small amount of damage on land. The government doesn't act quickly enough, and then the creature appears again, causing much more damage. About halfway through the movie, the populace is always horrified to discover that Godzilla breathes fire. There's a romantic subplot the audience doesn't care about, and then a scientist proves smart enough and brave enough to finally either kill Godzilla 
or make him turn tail and run back to the ocean. Got it? Good. Because it's time to address the giant lizard in the room. There are surely plenty of listeners who at this point are shouting at their phones saying, how dare you accuse Godzilla of being a villain? For many, Godzilla is a benevolent hero, a figure who appeared in Saturday morning specials where he beat up much worse monsters like King Ghidorah and Hedera the Smog Monster. But we are going to argue that this character is at his best when he stands for horror. What that horror entails can change, but there's only one giant monster that can hulk through downtown Tokyo and inspire untold levels of dread. It's actually surprising how dark the original 1954 Godzilla movie is. It's the product of a few different minds, namely producer Tomoyuki Tanaka, director Ishiro Honda, and special effects director Aiji Suburaya. And from moment one, they make it clear that Godzilla is not a gentle beast. Though we don't see him at first, we see the result of his actions. A group of sailors are enjoying themselves on the deck of their boat. They joke, play cards, strum instruments. Suddenly, they see something bubbling up from the water. They point and scream, and then there's a flash. The boat bursts into flame and sinks. But that's just the beginning. Once Godzilla is fully on the scene, he doesn't hold back. He stomps through the city, melting power lines, gnawing on trains. This is where the film truly paints the monster as villainous. He sows chaos that other evildoers could only dream of. Down on the ground, a woman clutches her screaming children, saying, We'll be with Daddy soon. We'll be with Daddy soon. A chill creeps up our spines as we imagine ourselves in a similar situation, having to look at our loved ones, knowing we are about to die because of this impossible, monstrous thing. After the monster temporarily retreats to the water, the film's lead scientist character treats Godzilla's victims. He moves a Geiger counter along the torso of a child and shakes his head with sorrow. The youth has been fatally poisoned by the fallout from the attack. This isn't a fun action hero. It's an unnatural creature that destroys lives. Vice editor Brian Merchant writes, Godzilla is unlike most other monster movies in this regard. We see people suffering, really suffering, and feel pity and remorse instead of the gleeful schadenfreude today's horrormeisters aim for. Considering what we've discussed so far, you may wonder then why we even have to prove Godzilla's villainous credentials. Well, as we've mentioned, Godzilla went on to spawn the longest-running movie franchise of all time. And by movies five or six, the filmmakers started to tire of the old Monster Destroys the City storylines. They needed to mix things up for the character. Pretty soon, Godzilla became less of a villain and more of an Earth Guardian summoned to fight other monsters. By 1962, he had a son, Manila, and they lived happily on Monster Island with all the other kaiju. In the 70s, he became even more human, doing little dances with his arms to signify his victories. 
Most infamously, in 1976, he slid along the ground using his tail so that he could kick Megalon the monster extra hard. By 1992, he was playing basketball with Charles Barkley in a Nike commercial. It can be a hard pill to swallow, seeing Godzilla turned into a mascot like this. His dark, rich portrayal in the original film is now completely overshadowed by pro-wrestling-style hijinks. In the 1960s films onwards, he's also overshadowed by other, more gimmicky monsters. The filmmakers churned out everything from an underwater robot to a malevolent race of aliens in the hopes of attracting more viewers. Naturally, the evil monster of a movie gets more screen time as it is doing most of the destruction. Godzilla then typically receives far less screen time in films where he isn't the villain. Writer Rob Young points out that in 2014's Godzilla, which has the monster facing off against two mutants, the giant lizard gets a total of 10 minutes of screen time. This could be alright if there were other interesting things going on in the movie. But as Young argues, this isn't Jaws, where you have a trio of captivating human characters to hold your interest. 2014's Godzilla has the same lack of strong human characters that plague most Godzilla movies. Once again, this tradition likely carries over from the filmmaker's desire to showcase the destruction. We don't mean to entirely put down these chapters of Godzilla's history. They are entertaining and even meaningful to some viewers. Discussing 1969's Godzilla's Revenge, entertainment author Peter Biebergel writes, Godzilla later teaches his child, and a human child, how to be brave, only minutes after annihilating a gargantuan praying mantis. As an anxious kid, I reveled in Ichiro's and Minya's transformation from tormented to fearless, guided by a friendly demigod. At the time, I didn't know that Godzilla had his roots in something far graver than childhood bullying the ruin of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by American atomic bombs. This is all to suggest that when we lose Godzilla as the villain, we lose the most meaningful aspect of his character, the idea that he represents the fears of the atomic bomb and the chaos of other man-made horrors. The original 1954 film makes multiple blunt comparisons to Nagasaki and Hiroshima, at one point, images from the bombings even appear on screen. The melted power lines, flattened buildings, and irradiated civilians that Godzilla leaves in his wake could just as easily have been caused by an atom bomb. The bombings were still in the news at the time of filming, close to a decade after the incidents. New victims emerged all the time, such as those who developed leukemia years after being exposed to the fallout. But for all the bomb's infamy, there was a more recent event in Japanese history that was even more at the forefront of the national consciousness. In March 1954, the American military started testing nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands, which had been conquered by the Japanese in the 1920s and were now under the stewardship of the Americans. This testing, dubbed Castle Bravo, was set to test a hydrogen bomb, which had the potential to deliver a much larger payload than the atom bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And that March, 
the potential transformed into reality. Castle Bravo let loose with the force of 15 megatons of TNT. The flash could be seen for miles. The mushroom cloud was like a kaiju itself, reaching above the atmosphere. It was instantly iconic, entering the public consciousness as the go-to image when picturing nuclear warfare. But most infamously of all, the blast was larger than anticipated. It roared across the ocean and onto the nearby islands, exposing thousands to radiation poisoning. It most directly affected the crew of the Daigo Fukuryu Maru. Their captain would eventually succumb to radiation sickness. The size of this blast and the fact that it was impacting innocent civilians even after the war was over made it especially horrific to Japanese people in 1954. As international consultant David Ropeek put it, it was also a reminder to Occupy Japan that the bomb was still very much alive. The atomic nightmare wasn't relegated to world wars. It was an omnipresent threat. Another factor at play was the fact that it was the Americans who had conducted the test. Sentiment toward the occupying foreigners was, of course, mixed in the decade following World War II. They had dropped the bombs, shamed the leadership, leading many of them to commit suicide. But even though the empire was defeated, Emperor Hirohito was left as a symbolic figurehead to represent the new American-sponsored Japanese government. For those who hated him due to the atrocities his government had committed, this was a slap in the face. For those who supported Hirohito, it was shameful to see their emperor considered a god used as a puppet. But the American military saw this as an essential move. Michael J. Green, director of Asian studies at Georgetown University writes, Japan experts said, if you dismantle the emperor system, there will be chaos. Chaos, havoc with no regard for human life. This is what hung in the balance if Japan's government didn't stabilize. But to the Japanese, the Americans were harbingers of chaos. They interned their own Japanese citizens during the war. In 1952, they had gone back on their policy of a demilitarized Japan so that the Japanese military could be built up in preparation for the Korean War. And now, they were killing Japanese citizens in the name of weapons tests. This threat weighed heavily on the minds of every Japanese citizen in 1954. And as spring turned into summer, the filmmakers at Toho Studios in Tokyo, Japan, were looking to make a film that channeled this threat. But why simply tell the story of a single explosion when you could have a creature that generated an unlimited amount of damage? The King of the Monsters was about to be born out of the ashes of atomic fire. Next, we explore how the original Godzilla film synthesized fears over the Castle Bravo incident into an iconic villain. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. It's common knowledge that Godzilla, the Japanese monster, was based in part on the 1945 atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But in actuality, the villainous beast was more immediately inspired by the 1954 Castle Bravo hydrogen bomb test and the chaos it wrought. As the filmmakers wrote and shot Godzilla during the summer of 1954, they included a lot of the hot-button words and imagery of the time in the film. As we've discussed, the film opens with a bunch of sailors being flash-blinded and then burnt to a crisp by Godzilla. This imagery directly mirrors the fate of the crew of the Daigo Fukuryu Maru, a fishing vessel caught in the fallout of the 1954 hydrogen bomb test. Other lines of dialogue in the film pay lip service to this comparison between Godzilla and weapons of war. When the human characters of the story are first trying to guess at what might have caused the sinking of the Navy ship, they ask, naval mines? Later, a scientist in the film reveals that Godzilla is, in fact, an ancient dinosaur of some kind, awoken by hydrogen bomb testing. It is said that he was baptized in the fire of the H-bomb and survived. Here is where the villain is elevated. It becomes something more than a scary lizard. He is the embodiment of all of Japan's greatest mid-century fears. If Godzilla is, at least at first, a thing of nature, then on a story level he can represent all of nature. He is then baptized by the hydrogen bomb, the ultimate form of man's technological hubris. Nature meets man's folly, returning as a giant dinosaur to bring about Judgment Day. This makes sense with Japanese culture. According to the Kyoto Journal, Japanese mythology describes how the elements of nature – rivers, trees, mountains, the sun and the moon – preceded fire and the violent divinity which represents the military-industrial complex. There is, therefore, this sense within Japanese storytelling that modernization, the ways of man, is a usurper to the natural elements. 
Suppression of the natural world induces guilt. And so, whether it's a stand-in for the H-bomb or any other number of human incursions, Godzilla's chaos represents a comeuppance. And it's not surprising that his chief weapon is fire, the original usurper to the elements. If Godzilla uses chaos to express displeasure with Japan, we could say that his fire breath is that chaos incarnate. Fire is destructive, spreading rapidly and unpredictably. But it also leads to unknown change. What will rise from the ashes? It's clear that the character appealed to the Japanese on multiple levels. But soon, Godzilla would come to stand for the larger global fears of man's steady march toward apocalypse. In the second half of the 20th century, mass media made the average man more aware of world events than ever before. The Japanese learned that the Americans, Russians, and more were all developing bigger, deadlier bombs. It seemed likely that the world would be engulfed in fire. But beyond this, consider how the news makes us aware of every single disaster that happens. Every flood, tornado, every fire or severe workplace accident. The people of the 1950s was aware of global suffering for the first time. It was overwhelming. And it continues to be, even for a modern audience. You know exactly how much pollution is damaging the planet, how terror attacks are common, how pandemics are sweeping across the globe. Chaos. That anxiety of the things you can't control, the horrors of everyday life, are encapsulated within Godzilla. Even more specifically, he stands for the horror of man's effect on nature, how increased industrialization and militarization and technology in general can destroy us. This translated across borders. An edited version of the 1954 film arrived in America in 1956. Though Americans hadn't experienced the horrors of nuclear war firsthand, they were nevertheless thoroughly terrified of it. Duck and cover drills had them just waiting to be set on fire by the Russians. Between this looming fear and films like Godzilla, the world would soon start to turn against man-made tools of destruction. Quoting author Bill McKibbins, author David Ropeek writes, Opposition to nuclear power and industrial chemicals has been a core theme of modern environmentalism ever since the 1950s nuclear tests, based on the same inspiration that brought Godzilla up from the depths. We need to protect nature from human-made technology. Those environmental values now also inspire opposition to genetically modified food, or fracking, or large-scale industrial agriculture. Any modern technology that allows humans to manipulate and threaten the natural world. This expansion into representing a wider variety of ecological woes likely stems from Godzilla's longevity. As the films continued into the 1960s and 1970s, the horrors of nuclear war abated somewhat, and other concerns came to the forefront. But this only works when the character is played for horror rather than action spectacle. Consider the scene from the original 1954 film where Godzilla attacks the power lines in Tokyo. It's shot in dimly lit black and white, and Godzilla is a man in a suit. And yet, 
the scene manages to be very powerful. The creature lurches through the ocean as heavy strings bemoan his presence. He approaches the power lines and we quickly cut to a scene of workers at the power plant rapidly checking dials and listening closely in their headphones. There is a beat of silence. Then, a beep as the power is thrown on so that Godzilla will be electrocuted. A slurry of gun and cannon fire comes from the shoreline where the military has assembled to combat the beast. The complete silence of just a second ago contrasts with this sudden bombardment. It's painful to our ears, making us wince and take the monster that much more seriously. Godzilla then manhandles one of the power lines. He is shot from behind with the light silhouetting him, so all we see is the glow of his spiky back. Then we get the iconic roar. And we see him from the front, though he is draped in steam and shadow. Explosions ricochet off his long, slimy tail, which in this lighting and with his framing looks thoroughly convincing. Before long, he is spraying the remaining power lines with his heat breath. The effect looks cheap, but as the power lines melt, we recall images of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and we take the scene seriously. Then Godzilla proceeds into town and we see a new human element. Dozens of real actors run in terror from the hulking monster. It breathes fire on them too and again, the effect looks unimpressive. But the hulking strings return and once more, we think of Japan in 1945 and imagine how the people in Nagasaki and Hiroshima must have died in the same way. We realize that the chaos wrought by man-made disasters is unstoppable, that we are all but ants next to this kind of malevolence. A frankly terrible-looking puppet is transformed into one of cinema's greatest villains as this imagery and these sounds lead us to project all of our anxieties over the modern world onto the monster. The strings, the high contrast black and white, the cacophonous soundscape, these are the accoutrement of horror, the filmmaking techniques that elevate Godzilla and show him at his best. This contrasts sharply with the most recent Godzilla films, 2014's Godzilla and 2019's Godzilla King of the Monsters. These portray Godzilla as the sort of environmental guardian that he became in the film of the 1960s and 1970s. TV screens say things like, King of the Monsters, Savior of our city? And characters utter phrases like, Long live the king! They're treating him as more of a gift from nature instead of nature's punishment. He is no longer a symbol of chaos. The modern effects and general modern Hollywood filmmaking aesthetic grounds both pictures in a fairly real world. So it's a weird tonal clash to have the characters treat Godzilla like some sort of hero when he is ultimately still a monster that destroys lives. In King of the Monsters, Godzilla's final showdown with the antagonist monster, King Ghidorah, features these same tonal clashes. 
As Godzilla bursts through the fog and rain, it is always raining in these movies as the monsters have become a climate change allegory. He is accompanied by a literal fleet of Navy and Air Force vessels, as if they've put aside their differences and decided to fight together. How this understanding was achieved with a thousand-foot-tall monster that can't do anything other than roar and breathe fire is unclear. There's a lot of intercutting with the human characters, again showing how the emphasis tends to move away from Godzilla when the films become more generic action-adventure. There's no rich atmosphere here like there was with the 1954 film. Godzilla and Ghidorah charge at each other, and their clash does admittedly create a striking image. Ghidorah is a three-headed dragon with large demonic wings, and he hulks over Godzilla menacingly. Ghidorah, first introduced in 1964's Ghidorah, the Three-Headed Monster, does present some interesting thematic ideas as well. In the 2019 film, he is the only monster to have arrived on Earth from another planet. He is an alien, his very presence corrupting and twisting the Earth. This allows Godzilla, the man-made but still of the Earth monster, to have something to rally against. Perhaps there is some thematic suggestion that the destructive power of man can be harnessed to positive ends. But it's not entirely convincing, because again, Godzilla is still destroying things. In fact, in order to destroy King Ghidorah, he has to go thermonuclear, rendering Boston uninhabitable. But the size of the two monsters alone would be enough to destroy the area. The 1883 eruption of Krakatoa was so loud that the sound wave killed people who were standing too close. We can't help but imagine that the mountain-sized vocal cords of the monsters would be lethal to those within range, much less the titanic crashing of their limbs and jaws locking together. You can't escape the fact that something this big means chaos. Young Millie Bobby Brown standing on the sidelines and smiling at her hero Godzilla would be liquefied by the force of his roar. This is a bit of a rabbit hole to go down while discussing our villain. We promise it's not just because we want to share our bad reviews of the newest Godzilla films. Thematically, these films represent a pretty profound shift for the character. He becomes not just a hero, but an eco-warrior. King of the Monsters ends with him and his fellow monsters reseeding drought-laden parts of the planet. As we already mentioned, the climate change allegory is clear. Stop harming the Earth, in this case represented by the monsters, as it provides for us and is the only way we will survive the cold vacuum of space, represented by Ghidorah. But it's a muddy theme that ignores the fact that Godzilla was woken up by man's meddling and that again, bottom line, Godzilla still kills people. It also places the onus for saving the planet on these monsters rather than people themselves. Journalist Nick Brolin writes, In terms of the climate allegory, this framing seems negligent, absolving humanity of its collective crime. It's an abdication of responsibility. We cause the crisis and cannot handle it, but don't worry, the big guy will fix things. Both our capacity to act and need to do so are tossed aside. 
But that doesn't mean Godzilla can't be redeemed. There is a way to present him as an environmental savior and still keep him firmly rooted in villain territory. In fact, it's already been done. Next, we'll discuss the modern Godzilla film that honors his villainous roots, but uses him to suggest hope for the future. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now, back to the story. Godzilla is the ultimate chaos villain. Using the regenerative power of fire, he punishes man for his hubris. He is thus a stand-in for many real-world fears, making him one of cinema's most enduring characters. But modern attempts to turn him into an eco-warrior have been less successful. However, a recent Godzilla film manages to channel the chaos of atomic horror while updating the creature for the climate change age. Fittingly, it is a Japanese rather than American film that achieved this balance. We're talking about 2016's Shin Godzilla. Produced by Toho Studios, the same studio that gave birth to the original 1954 film, Shin Godzilla is in some ways a fairly direct remake. Godzilla arrives from the ocean, has a few clashes with the military on land, and is then defeated by scientists. What's different here is that the film is steeped, absolutely steeped, in highly detailed, highly realistic scenes of bureaucracy. This might sound boring, and at first, it actually is, somewhat. Before Godzilla even emerges from the waves, we're treated to disaster response meetings, phone calls, and even cabinet meetings with the Prime Minister of Japan. But this actually serves to ground the story more than it ever has been before, and ratchets up the tension. But when Godzilla does show up, he's not what we're expecting. Instead of a giant, hulking dinosaur, he's still in a kind of larval stage. A hideous, primitive creature spewing blood from his gills and crashing aimlessly through the streets of Japan. He's chaos incarnate, both visually and in his frantic actions. Though he is causing damage and is, of course, disturbing to look at, he doesn't seem like an especially serious threat. He's just a little baby after all. At this point in the story, an interesting inversion of the themes occurs. In the 1954 Godzilla, it is the modern, youthful Japanese who do not take Godzilla seriously at first. They do not believe an elderly islander who warns them not to mock the sacred beliefs of his ancestors, who knew Godzilla was real and revered him as a god. In Shin Godzilla, it is the young, 
thinking outside of the box engineers, scientists, and politicians who immediately recognize the threat that Godzilla represents. While their elders waste time in an endless chain of bureaucracy that requires two dozen yeses before action can be taken, they get to work studying the creature. And it's a good thing too, because the beast returns to the ocean only to come back full-grown, closer to the thousand-foot dinosaur we know. Only his appearance is far more disturbing than we've ever seen it. His body is a twisted mass of red and black muscles. His teeth are a forest of needles. And his tail is freakishly long, darting around as if with a mind of its own. The young scientists soon realize that the creature emits deadly radiation. The impact of this discovery is huge. Up until this point, human understanding of life on Earth is that it can't possibly be atomic powered. The task force realizes that Godzilla is a new type of organism, evolved from something on the ocean floor that was mutated by man's meddling with nature. What's more, the fact that he is nuclear-powered means he is the most advanced organism on Earth. He doesn't need to eat or drink water. He is not vulnerable to the elements. The older generation scoffs at this notion, unclear on how a dumb beast could be considered the pinnacle of evolution. But they see evolution as a ladder, which it isn't. It's a sprawling web of mutations, all responses to the environment that meet with varying degrees of success. Godzilla may not be able to hold a press conference, but his massive frame, endless energy and, as will soon be discovered, ability to procreate means that he will inherit the Earth. This depiction of Godzilla takes the original hydrogen bomb-inspired concept and turns it up to a hundred. By rooting the creature in very specific, well-thought-out pseudoscience, the filmmakers also achieve a grounded tone that works well here when it didn't in other modern Godzilla films. Showing how people at every level of society would react helps as well. Ironically, this bird's-eye view leads to some of the best characters in any Godzilla movie as we start to relate to and root for specific members struggling against not just the monster, but the bureaucracy. But most of all, by turning Godzilla into an explicit nuclear reactor, the filmmakers directly echo more modern catastrophes, such as the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. This was when a nuclear power plant in the Fukushima prefecture of Japan was damaged in an earthquake. The resultant explosions severely contaminated the surrounding area and ocean with radioactive fallout. Just another episode in the horrors of being a modern human. But this event presented a similar reminder to the 1954 hydrogen bomb test. Yes, the earthquake was not man's fault, but by using thermonuclear reactions to power our cities, we invited more opportunities for disaster. Japan thus has played host to a long history of technological hubris and nature clashing violently. It is an arena of sorts. In Shin Godzilla, man's hubris once again proves itself when the Japanese government uses military force against the monster. 
it is completely invulnerable to all of their weapons. Even worse, it's the midpoint of the movie, which, as Godzilla fans, means we know what time it is. The red glow from beneath Godzilla's scales suddenly turns purple as he radiates with even more atomic energy than usual. The military and the bureaucracy that sent in the troops watches in horror. Godzilla lets loose with his atomic breath, a deadly purple beam that absolutely decimates downtown Tokyo. This isn't 1954 where he chews on one building at a time. He eliminates whole swaths of the city in seconds. We learn what his back spikes and tail are for as he lets loose on the bombs and planes above him, shooting purple lasers from his back into the sky. The military is defeated, and much of the Japanese leadership is killed. This is the scariest version of Godzilla, precisely because he is the most chaotic. He has the most potential to cause destruction. The filmmakers continue to prove this as our young scientists discover that the now hibernating monster is going to produce offspring. With its ability to mutate and adapt to any situation, it will soon conquer the world. Film critic Carl Broughton writes, Watching this creature transform from goofy but dangerous into its final form is one of the most terrifying aspects of Shin Godzilla. Unlike the Hollywood version, Shin Godzilla oozes and pulsates, representing its radioactive origin. Its red coloration evokes blood, but more importantly, it symbolizes the creature's rage. This rage is only increased as the Japan self-defense forces serve as an annoyance rather than a threat to the creature. When the US intervenes with a massive airstrike from B-2 bombers, Shin Godzilla unleashes his most devastating attack. An atomic breath attack so fierce and horrifying that it is highly debated as being the most destructive display of power from any Godzilla incarnation. So Shin Godzilla succeeds because it makes Godzilla more of a chaos villain than ever before. But that's not all the film does well. The surviving young scientists continue to study the monster, and they theorize that the only way to affect its nuclear-powered cells is to freeze them. They want to stop Godzilla in its tracks by injecting its hibernating form with a coagulating substance. This goes against the wishes of the United Nations, and the United States in particular, which is shown as an increasingly shadowy entity that knew about the monster before its rampage and did nothing. They want Godzilla destroyed with a nuclear strike, something the scientists are unsure will work. Not to mention, this will do irrevocable damage to what's left of Tokyo. The younger generation thinks of their dead elders who made Japan into a place where do as you please was not allowed. One character remarks, it's time that Japan does as it pleases. In the face of doom, they recognize that danger is an opportunity for growth. By fighting Godzilla their way, by saving their country through thought and collaboration rather than more technology and violence, they can save the world and build a better future.
This is the power of Godzilla and chaos as a whole. Chaos is frightening because it's unpredictable, but it's not unstoppable. And once we learn from it, we are better for the experience. It's thus ironic that Shin Godzilla, the most villainous version of Godzilla, is also the one that inspires the most hope, whereas previous incarnations inspired only dread, or, well, whatever was going on in some of those other movies. The heroes of Shin Godzilla succeed, freezing the monster in place. They not only save the world, but now have a preserved atomic specimen that they plan to share with other nations. The scientific discoveries resulting from this research might lead to significant advances in medicine. But of course, this might also be just another step in the endless cycle of man's manipulation of nature and breeding chaos. The final shot of the film shows Godzilla's frozen tail where, impossibly, humanoids were attempting to emerge before being frozen. But overall, the film ends on a hopeful note. After decades of Godzilla films, it manages to synthesize the idea of Godzilla as villain and Godzilla as savior by making his attack the thing that united Japan and perhaps mankind. Speaking to this paradox, author Peter Biebrigel writes, no matter how playful or haunting his movies have been over the decades, this duality, Godzilla as both a terrifying metaphor for mankind's hubris and a protector capable of almost cosmic benevolence, has always been at the heart of the character. The monster has evolved too far from his original metaphor to be obliged to return there. Godzilla endures as a pop-cultural force today in part because he has come to represent the idea that what can destroy humanity can, in turn, also liberate it. The ultimate evolution of Godzilla as a villain is the idea that not all technology is bad. Man's attempts to better itself are not inherently evil. But the character does hold up a mirror to our society and asks whether we are slaying our Godzillas by creating more of them or by working together to innovate and create a better future. The chaos that rages inside of Godzilla is the same chaos that drives the rise and fall of civilizations. It is only calmed by a synthesis of the chaotic and the orderly, the good and the bad. We'll soon see how the chaos villain archetype plays itself out that way with many different characters. It's always about bringing the chaotic nature of the villain into balance with its more pure intentions, whether that be on the cosmic scale with Godzilla or on the individual level, such as with our next villain. The founder of Fight Club certainly doesn't see himself as a villain. He doesn't see himself at all. He thinks he's a completely different person. He thinks he's his own best friend. He is a boring office worker, whereas his friend is the ultimate macho man, chaos incarnate. Next week, we'll learn what Tyler Durden's brand of chaos has to teach us. Thanks for listening to Villains. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Villains for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream Villains on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Villains was created by Drew Cole and Max Cutler. Villains is a Parcast Studios original and is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Scott Stronick with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden and Erin Larson. This episode of Villains was written by Greg Castro. I'm Alastair Murden. Thank you.